Hey, I'm Michaela Lefrac, the host of Vermont Edition. The podcast you're about to listen to has been edited for clarity and brevity. Happy listening. And today is Valentine's Day. As we were saying before, there is no specific date of when the holiday was first celebrated, but the best estimate is that it began sometime in ancient Rome. And according to a religious studies professor at Yale University, men would sacrifice a goat and a dog and then whip women with the hides because it was believed it would make them fertile. All this would conclude with a matchmaking lottery where men and women would draw a name from a jar. The couples would then have, for lack of a better term, relations from roughly the 13th of February to the 15th to celebrate the Feast of Lupercalia. So fair to say, not the hallmark version that most of us are familiar with today, where you might offer a little candy heart with LUV written on it to somebody that you're keen on instead of lashing your potential mate with a goat hide. Sweets, chocolate seems to be the approach now. In fact, this year, Americans are expected to spend a record $14.2 billion on candy treats for Valentine's Day. That's according to the National Retail Federation. There's no guarantee, of course, that a box of chocolates will win someone's heart. So we're wondering just how love actually works. And here to help us with that question is Dr. Jeremiah Dickerson, here to provide answers. He's a child and adolescent psychiatrist at the University of Vermont Medical Center. Dr. Dickerson, welcome back to the show. It's great to have you on. Thanks for having me, Mitch. Dr. Dickerson, you have taught a course called Sex, Love, and the Neuroscience of Relationships at UVM. I'm wondering what sparked your interest in this topic? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, my my interest in the topic developed from thinking about the the field of social neuroscience, mm. um, and it's a field that that brings in um, like aspects of psychology, psychiatry, medicine, anthropology, sociology, really trying to understand and examine relationships. And then in psychiatry, thinking about you know our aim to treat and prevent mental health conditions. Relationships are a huge part of that. They're such an integral part of that equation. And we're learning that connectedness and the range of relationships that we have throughout our lives can be quite formative for fostering mental health and resiliency. Um, social factors can also confer risk for developing mental health struggles as well, right? And so there are there are really thera- powerful therapeutic forces at play when we think about relationships. And the evidence is really robust thinking about how connectedness and feeling seen, loving, feeling that we are loved all make for, for healthier brains and richer lives. It's such a feeling, though, literally a feel the feeling of love. Yeah. So I'm just wondering about the science part of it. You know, how, how does the, the research, the technology come into it? Yeah, the technology has been really important, I think, to really get a sense of really what's happening in our brains when we think about love. Right. I mean, when we all think about love, we may think of very different things and there's different versions of love, different types of love. When we think about our family relationships versus our friends versus our romantic partners, Um and it can be really difficult to sort of explain with words. Um, and I think that's why historically, you know, thinking about the humanities, like a lot of art and poets, um, poetry have really focused on trying to understand love because I think it really transcends language. But one of the wonderful things about biology is that we can try to understand it through the lens of neuroscience. 
Um, and by understanding it a little bit better, hopefully can allow people who are struggling to get the help they need to live more meaningful lives, thinking about the relationships that they have. I mean, nobody wants to think about love in the, you know, the stark terms of, oh, it's all chemical. Yeah. You know, you see somebody, or I've heard about pheromones and things yeah. like that. Um, but does that play a part? Is, is there something about the science, uh, the chemistry of what's going on in our brains that makes us attracted to someone or, or get to that feeling of love? Yeah, absolutely there is. And, and researchers have really studied this and described sort of different stages of love, falling in love. Um, you know, maintaining that relationship and then sort of long-term bonding. And that that falling in love, sort of that initial stage, um, is really rooted in a pretty primitive part of our brain, the limbic system or um, the reward system. And it's the same part of the brain that is activated when um, folks are struggling with addiction. And so it's really interesting to think about, you know, the feelings that we have when we're in love and the behaviors that we may engage in when we, we see someone that we're attracted to, that a lot of those behaviors are similar to what folks might experience if they're um, having troubles kind of um, stepping away from certain substances or things like food or chocolate are also kind of substances that that um, activate our reward system as well. And that gets into, you know, sort of the darker side of love. Let's say, you know, love becomes maybe obsession. Yeah. I mean, you know, that that can be, it sounds like well, that's what you're saying. It's very similar to needing, a, that feeling of needing a drug or something. Yeah, I think, you know, there's, there's a lot of similarities there. Um, we know when folks that during that initial stage of, of being attracted to somebody, you know, dopamine is a neurotransmitter that's released and it's responsible for driving us to do something, to get more of something. Um, serotonin is also in play, and serotonin is another neurotransmitter in our brain, and lower levels of serotonin are associated with um, conditions like obsessive-compulsive disorder, for mm. instance. And so um, there are studies that show that serotonin actually declines in our brain during that initial stage of love. So certainly could be responsible for that obsessive feeling that some of us may get when we see our partner um, and lead to some compulsive behaviors as well. Listeners, we are speaking with Dr. Jeremiah Dickerson of UVM, and uh, he is here to answer your questions if you have them about love, about maybe how to approach somebody that you like or would like to get to know better. Give us a call at 800-639-2211. That's 1-800-639-2211. You can also send an email to Vermont Edition at vermontpublic.org. And if you've got a great story about love lost or found, that's perfectly fine. We don't discriminate there. You can send that on to us and we'll read it on the air, possibly. Um, we, You mentioned, uh, Dr. Dickerson, that, you know, there is, of course, the love that we think of with Valentine's Day, attraction and, and couples getting together. But there's also, you know, the love about uh, for a child who's growing up in a family. And you've done extensive research on this. Uh, you're a child and teen psychiatrist. What role does love play in the development of a child? Yeah, I think it plays a really significant role. And I, I think of love um, in sort of the broader context when I think about children and developing relationships with their caregivers. Um, historically, people have referred to it as developing an attachment. And this has been studied since like the 1950s. And so there's decades and decades of research examining behaviors, um, sort of that dyad between a baby um, and their caregiver. Mostly the research has been focused on moms, but certainly um, other caregivers play a role as well. And those early relationships that are built, um, you know, tend to lay the groundwork for 
the relationships that people have throughout their entire lives. So that early sort of attachment style um, can be somewhat predictive of future styles that one may have with a romantic partner or um, friends or other acquaintances throughout the rest of their lives. That's really interesting. So you're saying that that bond created between a caregiver and a child can actually inform how that child grows up to have you know, how their relationships develop with other people. Absolutely. It informs how we may or may not trust other people. It may inform our, the way that we communicate with others. Um, And so it is really important. Certainly there are other forces at play throughout one's life, but it really provides a foundation for folks to really understand um, their relationships through the lens of, man, what's going well, what's not going well, how might I um, repair this? And, and understanding that early style may be helpful in that way. What about the history of some of these studies? Um, what, from what we can understand, our teams looked into this. Has it always been possible to conduct these studies on, on, on humans? No, I, <laughs> I think technology has been really helpful in that regard. So these, there are some really eloquent studies from a, a, a decade or so ago where folks are put into um, brain, scan, brain scanners, so fMRI machines that yeah. are taking pictures of their brain while they look at pictures of loved ones. And that really kind of allowed researchers and scientists to understand like where love may reside in the brain. So when you look at a picture of a loved one versus a picture of something else, um, it, it is that reward system that lights up in our brains for the most part. And so that technology has been really helpful. Previously, and, and I guess still ongoing, people have learned a lot about relationships through um, animal studies and observing different animal behaviors, non-human animal behaviors. So talk, talk a little bit more about that. Um, what are some of those animal behaviors, certain animals that we can learn from? Yeah, there's there's quite a bit. Non-human primates have been studied. Um, and so bonobos, um, a great ape, um, actually demonstrate a lot of similar behaviors to human beings, um, thinking about altruism and empathy and kindness. Um, and a lot of their sort of romantic relationship behavior is very similar to humans as well. And so it's a great sort of um, animal model to learn about behavior. And then the prairie vole is a, is a rodent that um, folks believe is one of the few monogamous species in our world. And so prairie voles tend to develop bonds for life with one single mate. And so that has been a really interesting sort of area of research looking into the world of monogamy and, and what's happening in our brain when we may pair bond with, with somebody for decades, um, if not longer. I, I've heard about that with penguins, but I did not have Prairie Vole <laughs> on my bingo love card, that's for sure. It should be on everyone's bingo love card. <laughs> I learned something new every day. Um, we, we've often heard that phrase of, you know, love is the universal language among human beings. Um, I am wondering, though, if there are cultural differences from society to society, the way we look at love in America, as opposed to Italians or the French or what have you. Yeah, I think there are some pretty considerable cultural differences in terms of how we're understanding behaviors that are associated with love. Um, I think, though, that the underlying biology is pretty similar. And again, it relates back to this primitive system that's activated. And we, we tend to think about that through the lens of it being really evolutionarily important, that you know, love is something that may help facilitate um, and foster strong relationships. Those relationships are needed essentially from an evolutionary evolutionarily perspective 
um, to have children, right? And so we need to to engage in these relationships to ensure that our gene pool survives. I mean, so much of this has changed over time. Uh, I'm thinking about what you just said about, you know, uh, hundreds of years ago, people were having children in a very different way that they're having children mm-hmm. now, you know? I mean, it was almost like, well, we need some more people to work the field so we're going to have some kids. It's definitely not like that now. We have a different way of looking at our kids uh, the way that we treat them and the way that we, you know, bring them into our lives. Um, so what is it about modern love that's maybe different from love in the past? Yeah, that's a great question, Mitch. I, I, I can't help but wonder about the role of technology when we think about modern love. Mm. And so thinking about the role of social media, the role of certain platforms or apps. That Dating apps, things using, like that. Yeah, yeah. To, to meet other people. Um, and I think time will tell in terms of what that's ultimately ultimately going to look like um, for us and our kids and um, how technology potentially can be leveraged in, in a really positive way to facilitate relationships. When you think about, um, you know, the way love is depicted in our culture, let's say in movies, you know, yeah. the rom-com is such a popular, <laughs> uh, you know, trope. Do you ever look at some of those movies and say, oh, no, they're, they're getting that all wrong or they're sending the wrong message? I'm just because you're so deep into this and you've studied yeah. the actual science of it. Yeah, it's certainly rather dramatic at times, right? But I think they, they get a lot of things right. Like there's something really universal about falling in love. For, and, you know, a lot of us have been there. A lot of us have, you know, think that we have fallen in love. A lot of us have fallen in love. A lot of us have fallen out of relationships as well. And, you know, when when folks describe like butterflies in their stomach or feeling nervous or anxious, um, you know, there there's a reason for that. And again, it's all rooted in biology. So I think I think films, you know, tend to tend to do a, a decent job. Um, and it speaks to sort of that that commonality that we all share in some way. You have any favorites? Just curious. Oh man, um, my wife is gonna kill me, but I love this <laughs> this movie called The Lake House. <laughs> I've heard of it. I've seen Reeves it. And, and Sandra Bullock um, post Speed. It's it's really cheesy, but um, a, a decent movie. <laughs> I, I I watched When Harry Met Sally again oh, recently, so and uh, yeah, it still holds up. I have to say, it still holds up. Are there things that we can learn about the science of love that can, I guess help people with things that are not necessarily as deep as love, but, you know, social interaction, um, relating better to other people. Some people are naturally shy. Some people, you know, find it hard to go to a party or be in, in, in a sure. room with lots of people. What, what can love teach us about that? Yeah, I think I think we have to appreciate that we're all wired a little bit differently in spite of having some common biology, right? And sure. so there's different sort of gradations of, I think, how comfortable people are in certain relationships and respecting that I think is important. But if folks really want to kind of get to understand themselves and understand where some of those struggles come from, I think that's really one of the useful kind of aspects of of um, having knowledge of this biology, um, you know, and we can change behaviors if we're motivated to do so. And so, yeah, just learning more about ourselves, um, I think, is is really important. And, it, and it's really complicated. I, th- I think when it comes to love, there are not a lot of simple solutions. And so I would encourage folks also to give themselves a fair amount of grace <laughs> when yeah. it comes to relationships and, and things working out um, uh, throughout their lives, ranging from you know adolescents to to young adults to older adults. I'm glad you mentioned that because I you know this holiday can be tough for people, mm-hmm. some people mm-hmm. you know, and and I always kind of feel that when it rolls around. I mean, everyone's got different views of how they view 
Valentine's Day. Maybe it's uh, for some a Hallmark holiday. It's kind of manufactured. Others, you know, they really get into it. And this is a lot of people get proposed to on Valentine's Day, that sort of thing. When this day rolls around, do, what, how do you start thinking about it? Do you wish that it was there was not maybe just one day dedicated to this or that it was like a year-round thing where we focus on love? Yeah, you know, thinking again about the science and sort of the world of mental health and the importance of relationships, I, I do think there's a broader role for speaking about love. Not Not necessarily romantic love per se, but sort of, again, thinking about that that need for connectedness that mm. can really make for healthier lives and, and healthier brains and thinking about the role of kindness and empathy in our, in our day-to-day lives that I think it's important to slow down, to be really intentional and thinking about, you know, how we can connect with other people. Again, not necessarily in a loving sort of way, um, but something that 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 sort of fills our cup. And I, I think Valentine's Day sort of illustrates that to some extent. But if it can be sort of broadened, um, I feel like a lot of folks would benefit from that. And we have Heidi on the line from north of the border in Montreal. Hi, Heidi. Hi, how are you? Doing well. Thanks for calling Hi, how in. are you? Good. Can you hear us? Awesome. Great. Yes, I can. Okay. Go right ahead. So basically, I was calling. Yes, I was calling in because I'm somebody who consistently I'm falling in love with somebody who I believe is genuine love. Now, the, the, the guy that I'm seeing is for four years. He's not reciprocating. It's not moving anywhere, but I can't shake that love. And it hurts. I miss him every day. I think about him every day. Um, and I just I don't understand it. I, and I would love to have insight on this. You know, how do you get over somebody who's not reciprocating? Uh, yeah. So Such so a great question, Heidi. Thank you very much. And, and yeah, I hope I hope that gets better for you. Dr. Dickerson, what do you think? Oh, boy, Heidi, it's it's really complicated. I for what it's worth, I think there are probably a lot of folks out there who are, are um, in similar situations. Um, yeah, if love's not reciprocated, um, I think that can be a really challenging place for a lot of folks to live. Um, we, we do know that, you know, folks who experience uh, who are loving but not loved in return, there's like a withdraw um, sort of phenomenon that that takes place. And it often compels people to even kind of um, move in deeper in terms of that relationship to kind of um, try to make it work. And so, um, yeah, I wish I had better advice for you, Heidi, not knowing the full circumstances of, of your relationship. But um, you know, I would I would encourage you to sort of pay attention to your feelings and and think about sort of the long game and and you know is this person ever going to change and if potentially not, um, thinking about what what decisions need to be made. Heidi, are you still with us on the line? Yes, I am. I'm still here. I have a quick question. I have a quick question for you, um, and I'd like Dr. Dickerson to address this as well. I, I hope that you're not feeling that because this love isn't reciprocated that you're judging yourself, you know? I mean, is, is that a, a problem, too? Because this, does, this should not reflect on, on you, I don't think, unless I have that wrong, Dr. Dickerson. That's right. Well, do I speak? Yeah, what, 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 do, you, what do you think? Uh, well, the thing with me is that, like, it's always, it's, it's a repetitive thing that's happened in my life. I'm 51, and I love genuinely, and I... I he was in love with me in the beginning too but there's always like that withdrawal and then they don't want to give you a clear answer and they're just kind of withdrawing and then eventually it's like you know when you ask it's like yeah I do but then 
So I just, I would love to get to the bottom of it because I'm, I'm living through heartbreak most of my life, which is very sad. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I, I, I would love to know more about how I can get to the bottom of it because I didn't have a healthy upbringing in terms of love, you know? So that would be um, a good thing to know, you know, but it's a repetitive thing over the years and I'm a very amicable person, no arguing, stuff like that, you know? So it's a, it's a big deal because so many people don't find love and when they do it's like how do you deal with it when it's not reciprocated you know yeah it's well, so common, I, find, you know? I, I really do appreciate the call Heidi and thank you for, for being brave enough to share that story I really do I appreciate that uh, you know Dr. Dickerson one of the things I think that Heidi and a lot of people who are going through that similar experience that she is is having is that you know she sounds like a loving person who's so ready to give love, yeah. does that sort of person who's ready to give of themselves often automatically make them more vulnerable when it comes to love? I think it does. And I, you know, I think, you know, the other aspect of falling in love is not only we get that surge of dopamine, but there are other parts of our brain that actually um, don't function as well. And those parts of our brain are responsible for making good decisions. They're responsible for judgment. Um, and so they go offline a little bit. And again, this tends to happen early in relationships, but I, there, there is some vulnerability there. Um, and I want to encourage Heidi, I think this is, you know, relationship issues are probably one of the most common reasons why people seek professional help um, with a therapist or a counselor. And, you know, a well-trained person can help Heidi make sense of how those early patterns may be continuing to influence her today um, and, and make some change. I want to wedge in one more quick call. Colleen is on the line from Hampton, New York. Hi, Colleen, and I, I urge you to be quick. We are up against the clock here. I'm sorry about that. Certainly. Um, I just uh, I wanted to be uh, encouraging to people who um, maybe have had a relationship and it ended and you felt like, oh, love's not going to come my way again. I, I was married to someone for 28 years. The marriage ended. Um, and I uh, felt, I, you know, I don't need love, and I probably will never meet anyone. And then um, a couple of years later, I walked into a club with some girlfriends, and um, there was this man standing there, and I felt instantly in love and walked over to him and, and said, uh, he, he looked at me and said, are you looking at me? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, it's my lucky day, and we started dancing, and we've been in love ever since. We've been together eight, nine years and married for five. So wow. there's, there's hope. Colleen, thank you so much. We're going to end on a high note there with that one, and I also very much appreciate you giving comfort to those you know whose experiences have not been as good. That is it for today, Dr. Jeremiah, Dick, uh, Jeremiah Dickerson. Thank you so much for being here. really appreciate your insights. Thank you, Mitch.